Welcome back to another edition of the Making the Madness College Basketball Podcast. I'm your podcast host, Jonathan Warner, uh, and today we have on a special guest. It is Eric Haslam. Uh, you can find him at Haslam Metrics on Twitter. We're going to be uh, discussing some of the popular topics in the sport, uh, some interesting debates going on. We're kind of both on the same side of each of these debates. Uh, so stay tuned. It should be a really fun show. Thank you. Welcome back to the Making the Madness College Basketball Podcast. Eric Haslam is on the line. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, JW? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, exhausting day, I guess. Uh, all... <laughs> that won't happen on social media. Yeah. Uh, so we'll get right into it. The main kind of discussion that's been going on is this wins above bubble uh, philosophy being, you know, a lot of people want that to be the end-all, be-all when it comes to seeding. And that that's just something, personally, for me, just one, it ruins the fun of doing bracketology and all this, you know, subjectivity that is involved with bracketology. It's fun. It's what makes the sport interesting. And it one, it takes that away. And two, it ignores like different varying factors, uh, such as the Bonzi Colson rule, uh, let's say two years ago. Uh, yep. Eric, Eric, your first thoughts on the winds above bubble. I know you're a little bit more plugged in to me. Yeah, you know, the WAB, I look at that as any, it's, it's, a, it's an evaluator. And, and I have no problem with different evaluations. It's a resume evaluator because you're dealing with two different things. You're dealing with performance rankings, which are independent of wins and losses. And then you're looking at uh, resume, which is highly dependent on wins and losses and the quality of those wins and losses. And that's what, what WAB is trying to accomplish. I have no problem with different different philosophies, but I think as you and I have discussed before, going all in on resume to determine inclusion in the field is is something that a lot of people, uh, and there is this almost cult following with the WAP, that they believe that is the only way to go. It's got to be 100% resume. Um, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people out there that believe otherwise, and that includes largely the, the selection committee in the past. We've seen the selection committee put value on as you mentioned, the Bonzi Colson situation with Notre Dame, bringing him back when they he came back late in the year, I felt Notre Dame got bumped up strictly because of him. Um, we've seen it, things in the past where we did, where the committee had said we just didn't like their record against uh, top quality opponents. I think of I believe two years ago, I believe it was USC that a lot of people had on that nine or ten line that fell off and didn't make it in. Uh, Nebraska two years ago was another example where they. You know, really did really well in conference. Of course, conference record is kind of irrelevant. But at the end of the day, they didn't have those impact, impactful victories, and they were penalized because of it. St. Mary's has been a team that's repeatedly been penalized for not having quality opponents. So I get where they're coming from. They want to go all in. They, they want to take all the, um, the quote-unquote subjectivity out of it and make it an across-the-board objective way of evaluating things. That's fine. That's their opinion. There are just a lot of people out there that just disagree with that. I probably am one of them, um, and you know, and that's fine. It, that's what makes this great is you're going to have a lot of people with a lot of differing opinions. And my opinion doesn't have to be right. My opinion doesn't have to be wrong. But I'm going to weigh it. So that's the way I look at it. Yeah, and I, I would say the majority of people you would talk to in college basketball 
they they would rather not have you know just a wins above bubble being the end all be all the reason one team gets in the reason another team get doesn't get in because it does ruin that su- subjectivity because I, you might yeah, I think it kills off I think it kills off bracketology too yeah. for the most part if you have if you have the, the set equation and the set algorithm you're going to basically know what has to happen yeah for the most part you're going to so it's it's going to pretty much kill and, and people can say well that's not going to be true because you can set you can change the seedings you know like the inclusion I think is the big part of bracketology here if you're going to take that out of it I think that kills off bracketology and I think I think those people who are big supporters of that methodology don't care. And that's fine. Again, like I said, there's going to be a lot of different people, a lot of different opinions. Um, but I think that would essentially kill off bracketology for the most part. And I think that's what they're trying to do. And again, that's, that's their prerogative. Yeah. And the, the main issue, at least for me, is like bracketology is a way to kind of like project the field. It's fun. Uh, you look at different peoples. You have varying opinions. You have sometimes completely wrong opinions that have people putting North Carolina in the field despite being 10 and 15. But that... It, it, it takes... It's fun. It's an exercise. People look at it. And it just going exclusively to the wins above bubble uh, just completely ruins the fun of it it ruins the fun of championship week like you're basically saying okay this matchup right here is the only thing that matters and let's say last year nc state versus clemson you know many people were kind of going at that as a playing game well according to wins above bubble it wouldn't have been a playing game because neither team was deserving and that that takes away interest in that game. It takes interest away from the sport as a whole in February and March. You know, a lot of people are going to be tuning in to watch whether or not one team can kind of pick up that quadrant one win that's necessary. All of a sudden, it you're being told, oh, it's not necessary. They're already in or they need to pick up three more to be in. It just... Correct. Every, yeah, every metric gamed. And that's one of the things we had talked about earlier too, is let's talk about the net. Um, a lot of people say, release the net. We want to see what this net formula is. The reason they don't release it, obviously, is because they don't want anyone to game it like they did the RPI. Any algorithm, any metric can be gamed if you know the formula. And that's what they probably want to protect against. So I think that would be maybe the biggest reason of all, why not to go into one full-on algorithm to determine who gets in and who doesn't get in, because it doesn't matter. They can gain. There's different levels of gaming the system, but they can still gain the system if they know how the game is played. Yeah, and coaches will gain the system however they want. And let's say with wins above bubble, uh, it would be like scheduling 13 uh, 150th ranked opponents to gain like whatever four wins above bubble. That I guess would maybe be the correct answer. Then all of a sudden you're just going to have one. It's going to take interest out of the sport in uh, November and December when you know the sport kind of you know relies on that, and it's it's just not good for the game as a whole. 
and takes away the subjectivity, which is the main issue. It takes away uh, different varying factors that could be included and basically just says this team's in, this team's not in, and there's no argument because that's the way it is. Right, and if you want to use it as a factor, like I said, I have no problem with that. I have a good authority already that that, that WAB has actually already used by the selection committee in ways. I know that I know that for a fact. But there, I, I I think none of them, none of the people in that room, are really looking to go all in on that. And that's the thing. If, if they if if they can keep pushing that narrative that that's the way we have to go, that's fine. Um, but again, it comes back to there's a lot of people who believe otherwise. They think that there should be that eye test adjustment, as Ke- uh, Kevin Sweeney referred to earlier today. And some people just don't like that subjective element. Other people do, um, and that's fine. Again, I keep saying that it, it's you know it's a difference of opinion of different people based on your personality style. Yeah, and I, I think the majority of college basketball fans they they like the entertainment that comes with doing different bracketologies, having all these out there, just resources uh, at our disposal, whether it's, you know, with Joe Lenardi, uh, whether it's with you, uh, Lucas, uh, Jerry Palm, uh, you know, just different bracketologists in general. People like reading those. They like kind of finding out the, you know, different elements of why X team is seated here and why... Uh, this other team may not be seeded quite as high, and uh, different fan like you'll see some bracketologies have some teams higher, and different fans will, uh, you know, be happy about that. But then all of a sudden, that takes away the fun element of it, and just creates a world where it's one thing, one thing only, and if you disagree with it, that's too bad because it's. It's this way or the highway, and it should never be this way or the highway when it comes to, you know, bracketology, which is the art of, you know, putting the 68 best teams into the field, which wins above bubble, does not put the 68 best teams into the field. I would agree with that, and that's, uh, um, again, if you want to factor it in and use it as a metric, that's great. You can make it even the primary metric in uh, in that is a starting point. In fact, if you want to go there over something like the net, I'm not a big fan of the net. Sometimes I see what's in the net and I, I scratch my head and go, I have no idea how those teams land there. Um, but at the same time, like you said, you need a little bit of variety. You need a little bit different perspective. I think I think conformity to one style is, is a cancer in any situation like that. I would never, ever say to somebody, hey, you need, we need to be using Haslam stuff across the board. I'd say, you're nuts. You're absolutely nuts to do that. Um, it, it, I think the idea is you have to have a lot of a variety, a variety of different perspectives and look at all those perspectives evenly and see which is the best one to fit. And so a lot of times you're, you're dealing with multiples that actually have a, a very important part in the selection process. Yeah, uh, there's so many different factors that go into the selection process. Uh, and, you know, the one thing is usually it's who you play, who you beat. That's kind of the principle that goes into selecting the at-large teams it's who you play who you beat if one team plays and beats good opponents and the wins above bubble doesn't like them uh, then 
that team's screwed, even though let's say the teams they beat were good. It just it completely takes away the human element. And let's say it could work vice versa. Let's say a team beats the number one team to earn giant wins above bubble points. Uh, like let's say Stephen F. Austin beats Duke, but Duke doesn't have Vernon Carey, Trey Jones in that game. Can we really count that as a win over Duke at, yep, at, at the same point. value? Yep, that's an excellent point. And that's the thing is like you've seen the committee do this in the past and say, we had to adjust for that particular game where this team, you know, didn't have these players. I, I can remember, uh, what was it, a few years ago, I forget, I forget if it was, they might have been both these teams, FMU and uh, Minnesota, I want to say two or three years ago. Both teams really, really solid at the, uh, at the beginning of the year and then all of a sudden gutted by injuries. So the teams that beat these Minnesota and SMU teams uh, later in the season had a far easier time than these, these teams did in the early part of the season. So that was something the committee took into, a, into account, and that's why you need the human element, in my opinion, why you need the human element in the selection process. Yeah, I remember that uh, two years ago. It, I think it was Providence. They lost to uh, Minnesota, and everyone was using the Oh, they have three quadrant three wins, how or three quadrant three losses. How could you put that team in the field? Well, Minnesota at the time uh, they played was probably a quadrant one opponent. They were a preseason top twenty-five team. Uh, they had all their starters, and like less than a month later, one player gets kicked off the team, another player tears his ACL, and all of a sudden Minnesota sucks. I mean, that, that. Yep. And that's why I even tell people about my analytics. I say never go all in on my analytics. My analytics are evidence of the crime scene. That's all it is. But uh, as you know, an evidence of the crime scene isn't an open and shut case. You need a judge and jury and you need eyes on, on the evidence. And that's why I look at this and go, you can't just go all in on one algorithm. You can't go all in on the analytics. You have to have some sort of human interaction, some judgment there those human adjustments and people hate subjectivity i get it but there's a lot of people out there like me who think that's an integral part of the process yeah and it's about having differing opinions uh making the decision uh in order to come to the field of 68 which usually determines the 68 best teams and thus far we've been doing this process the way it has been is delivered pretty much every single year with whether it be crazy first round upsets uh, last year's NCAA tournament the first two rounds kind of stunk but then Sweet 16 Elite 8 were all excellent oh, yeah. it was awesome especially the Purdue games you had Purdue games with uh, uh, Tennessee and Virginia which were just epic epic matchup, epic matchup so the tournament was outstanding last year and then all the Virginia games were great uh, oh yeah Michigan State had a Couple good games in there. Uh, That's right. Texas Tech had yeah, three. Oh, every Duke game, you know, with Duke with UCF, you know, winning that one, uh, and then they had Virginia Tech after that, and then before they lost Michigan State. So they, yeah, Duke had a, a series of games. It was just a really fun tournament last year. So um, I, I look at the selection process and go, you know, there's always going to be a few things here I don't agree with. I tried every which way to get UNC Greensboro even close to the field last year. I couldn't do it. I think they ended up being first or second team out or something like that. And, you know, I get it. They, I, and I talked to David Warlock at 
Yeah. Moving on, we're going to move away from the winds above bubble. I think we've beaten that dead horse enough. Going to get into the Elam ending uh, and why it should not be in college basketball. Uh, My main point about that is it's it ruins kind of the analytics game for one it ruins traditional basketball uh while it can be fun for like an all-star game uh you do it for maybe the three-on-three tournament although i think they do first to 21 anyway uh like if it's for fun go ahead it's i doesn't mind i don't mind doing that but I think college basketball and you know just regulation basketball are a different animal when it comes to that. Yeah, you, you know the Elam ending. I, I've spoken to Nick Elam, a really nice guy. He knows I'm not a big fan of the system. Um, I, I like the clock element. I, I think I, I think a lot of times in games you're really facing two opponents. You're facing your normal opponent. You're facing the clock as the opponent. And I think someone has said it best when they said, I think the ULM ending is a solution that's desperately in search of a problem. And the problem people will look at it and go, well, I don't want to see all these fouls. I don't want to see these guys go into the free throw line. These table reviews full. First of all, the table reviews are a problem. And that's that's completely separate from what the ULM ending is. This whole idea now where everything in the last minute, if, if it hits one molecule on a guy's fingernail, oh, we got to go to the monitors for, for three minutes. Um, just because, you know, obviously the, the last 60 seconds of a game have to be more important than the, the, the first 39 minutes. That was just the way they did things. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that either. But for me, the Elon ending, just, it, again, it, I think the clock element, keeping that there is, is key. And in a close game, I'm sorry, it's going to eliminate a lot of the buzzer beaters. And they're going to say, well, it's going to be exciting because it's going to be one bucket. Well, what's going to happen if you're going to have a two-shot foul in, in a game when you're playing to 78 and it's tied at 77, two-shot foul? Everybody's going to grab their jackets and head for the exits. And, I, you know, I, I look at this and go, again, I, I think the system is not broken in its current state. I don't have ADD. So if guys are going to the free throw lines which, and, and foul shots are an integral part of the game, that's a big part of the game, and you got to be able to make your follow shots. And those are very important down the stretch. That's why I don't want to change the, the makeup of the game. And I, you know, I'm glad to see guys like Mike DeCourcy out there who are also outspoken and saying, hey, if the NBA wants to do it, if TBT wants to do it, that's great. Keep it there. But personally, again, I like variety. If the NBA wants to adopt it, fine. I'm not a big NBA fan. But personally, I like the, the NCAA right now. It's it's one of the sports out there that, in my opinion, works beautifully. There's so many cancers in different sports. Even pro football is going downhill. You know, we see what happened with pro basketball. I, I just don't think that is anywhere near as great as it once was in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I still have that love for college basketball. I think these guys bust their ass out there every night. It means so much to them, and I don't want to take that away. Uh, I, and I don't want to change the game. I think the game in its present state works just fine. I would not change anything, but again, that's just one man's perspective, and who knows what will happen going forward. Yeah, I, I think there there's certain elements of the game that we can change. You know, you mentioned the uh, minor reviews. I think we could do a better job. You know, I think I think what I would do is maybe a thirty second shot clock for the minor review. You get thirty seconds to look at it. Uh, after that. It's either 
you think you got the call wrong and you reverse it or you keep the call on the floor. Uh, just speed the game up a little bit. Uh, no reason for these lengthy monitor reviews. Uh, fouls, it, as you mentioned, it's an integral part of the game. Making free throws to close out games. Uh, we've seen plenty of teams be up big, miss free throws, and lose games. It It is what, I mean, most, most times the team makes the free throws, they win the game, but sometimes it doesn't go that way. Uh, I think that all those things are important elements to the game itself, and taking that away by doing this Elam ending uh, would not be good for the sport. And another point about it, uh, Virginia would have to score 10 points in, let's say, five minutes. So that's not going to happen. So, You know, it's, it's the immediate gratification mentality of our society nowadays with smartphones. You know, we, we just crave always something going on. We crave excitement. And so any defensive game, and even I joke about it, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I'll be very uh, tongue-in-cheek on Twitter about Virginia saying, oh, God, you know, take your no-dos and, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever, drink your uh, eight pots of coffee. But at the same time, I'm glad that, that teams like Virginia are out there because I've actually tuned in to Virginia in the past just to see that style of play and see how methodical they are. And, yes, it doesn't yield 90 points on the scoreboard or even 70 points on the scoreboard. But there again, it's that variety where you can all of a sudden have that team that's, I mean, I would love to see a, I mean, a hypothetical game between Virginia last year and Loyola Marymount from 1990. Um, I still remember back in 1990, that one year when after, after Gathers died and they made that run of the tournament, that third game, they played Alabama when I believe the shot clock was still 45 and the average shot clock Per possession for Alabama was, I believe, forty-three seconds. They literally, and it was, it was such an intriguing game because Loyola Marymount had just come off hanging hundred and forty-nine on the defending champions. They beat Michigan one forty-nine, one fifteen, and Alabama was not going to let them do that. So they purposely took the air out of the ball. Loyola Marymount wins that game, but they win that game sixty-two sixty. But that is one of the things that people can say, oh, that was not basketball. They're, they slow the game down. It's boring. I look at that and go, that is the stuff that makes college basketball great. That you can have that one game where they, they hang 149 against Michigan, and the next game they have to grind it out and beat Alabama. That was beautiful. Yeah, and the fun thing about basketball, you get so many different you know styles within the game. You've got Virginia who will methodically play as they do. You've got teams like Alabama who will play fast, shoot uh, every shot to either a three or a layup. If they take a mid-range jumper, they get benched. Uh, it's just fun examining the different styles. Uh, and I, I, for one, am one that enjoys watching good defense, great defense. Uh, that's kind of something I enjoy watching personally. Uh, but other people want to watch great offensive teams like Alabama, like uh, Gonzaga this year. And, yeah, it's, and, Elam, and, and it circles back to the Elam ending where people want to get away from foul shots because it's not the exciting part of the game. But in my opinion, it's the integral part of the game. It should be there, and that's why I support uh, the, uh, the existing system right now. Moving on here, we're going to get into your metrics. 
Uh, explain first, though, what the analytically final is, because you know, analytically, analytically final was created. One of the things when I when I created my performance rankings is um, first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to get some some more rich data, and I wanted to you know be able to distinguish between hey, this is a, a long distance two point shot, or this is a dunk underneath the hoop, and that you know that allowed me to really split down the middle the mid range twos from the near proximity twos. Um, in doing so, I got all that information from the play-by-play logs instead of the box score uh, information. When I when I was able to parse everything out of the play-by-play logs, I was also getting something you couldn't get from the box score data, and that was the clock times. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to get a true evaluation of who these teams are when it counts. And if you have a game where Duke is playing Central Connecticut State and they're up... I don't know, 80 to eighty to 44 with 13, 14 minutes to play, you're going to get a cutoff in that game, which you can, again, is a subjective metric to determine when that cutoff is. But you make your best guess, and you, you apply it across the board, and you say, after that point when a game has gone analytically final, I no longer want to care about the results of that game. And the reason for that is because now all of a sudden, why would you keep your starters in? If you're up 36 with 13 to play, are you really going to play your one, your top five guys? No, you're going to go into your bench. You're going to pull your 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th guys. And all of a sudden, a 36-point lead against against the team may dissolve down and end up being 21, which is far less impressive. The idea behind it is I want to scrape out that garbage that got the lead down to 15 or down to 21, and I want that team that built that 36-point lead in the first 30 plus minutes of the game. And so that's kind of the idea of where the analytical final came from. And it is, and that's how it is applied in my performance ranks. I don't go by, by box score data. I go by play by play logs. And that's how I determine uh, the meaningful game is by using that analytically final. Okay. The next question I think a lot of listeners would have, let's say a game goes analytically final. Uh, Nevada is down by 33 at San Diego State and the game goes analytically final and then all of a sudden Nevada comes back and wins the game. Uh, do you kind of change the result based on that? I do not actually. And then one could argue and say, well, that's a flaw in the system. And I go, well, that's, that, that, that's uh, a flaw I'm willing to absorb. And, and here's the reason. Because that only happens, I think, maybe once per season at best. I can think of two occasions off the top of my head where that happened. One of them was a few years ago when Nevada came back in the pit against New Mexico, and New Mexico blew a big lead in the last, I want to say, under a minute, and ended up winning that game after it had gone analytically final. Another one that was probably a little bit more high profile was the NCAA tournament game between Northern Iowa and Texas A&M a few years ago, where I think the lead was, I want to say, 14 with, with I, I believe, something like... Uh, 49 seconds left to go or something like that and Northern Iowa gave away that game and, and Texas A&M won it. I look at that and I still um, you could make it you could make an adjustment in there. If I were um, going to go all in and wanted to really do this perfectly, one of the things I could do is I could average a pessimistic analytically final and an optimistic analytically final. One of them being when it first went analytically final and another being a time when it last analytically final, which at the very latest would be zero on the game clock. Um, as it is right now, I don't do that because the exception, those situations are so rare 
it's not worth it for me. Um, but in, in that situation, if you wanted to go all in, you could make some sort of hybrid between the optimism and pessimism of the two, um, and that would work just as well. Okay, moving on uh, here. Uh, kind of explain a little bit of your bracketology deserves. I think we've mentioned it a little bit as we've gone on here, but kind of explain what goes into that formula and kind of like what what you think it all means, basically. Yeah, I and mean, what I try to do is The shock is smart theory is the uh, end all be all for that. If you don't have good <laughs> enough record, right? And, and you know that does and that does come up. They talk about overall record being a part of it. So I look at that and say, you know, Minnesota has some very quality wins. Minnesota's had some tough losses. Purdue's in the same boat, but at the same time, they're going to start to sweat when they start seeing a team that's you know where Minnesota is right now, twelve and twelve. It's going to get really hard to justify why you're leaving out a mid mid major because of a team that's twelve and twelve, even though they're playing in arguably the toughest conference in the, in the country, the Big Ten. Um, I think that is something that's kind of an unspoken rule in the committee. They may say, "Oh no, that's not true at all," but I get the feeling that they're going to look at that record and go, "Come on, guys, we can't really do this." So that's my opinion on it. Yeah, and I I think. I've looked at kind of the different records that have gotten into the tournament, different records that don't get in. I think it's solidly like a three games above 500 rule. Uh, if you're three games above 500, most of the times uh, 
if you have a great resume, you probably get in. But if you're like two games above 500, like I think Indiana was last year, or I I want to say Texas was two games above 500 when they missed last year. Uh, don't quote me on that. But usually two games above 500, you're not going to get in. Uh, three games though, it, I've seen a couple teams get in in the past. So I think that's kind of the number they look at when it comes to re- record. The one I, I think the cutoff that I like to use, I look at the, I look at the teams that got in that were 1915. I think you had a Florida team that got in in 1915. was it last year, and then before that you had a 1915 Alabama team. That seems like a good cutoff to me. That's right around 56% winning percentage. And if you start dropping below that match, 0.560, um, I, I think you're really starting to set a, set a precedent for a team that hasn't really been there before. Not to say you haven't. I think you had a Georgia team in 2001 that was is that large but you know I look nowadays and, and I, I, I just again subjectivity you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to gauge what the committee would think and say well no, this team's two above 501 above what, what's going to make the committee sweat and say you know that's too much we can't explain it leave them out um, and that's where I'm trying to go with the algorithm the algorithm yeah and it, it kind of depends on the quality of wins as well uh, if let's say one team it has like is three games above 500 but has like eight top 25 wins that team absolutely deserves to be in the field and they would probably get in the field uh assuming they don't have the providence rule and lose four quadrant three games or something like that but if let's say a team is maybe 20 and 16 which i think i vanderbilt was couple years ago when they got in i think 2017 if i'm remembering correctly if they're yeah, maybe losses, yeah. but that vanderbilt team only has four quadrant one wins or top 25 wins uh i think they would go with the team with maybe a little bit worse record uh even though one team doesn't meet the maybe rule when it comes to record that you would want uh, as opposed to, let's say, a Vanderbilt team that maybe has a little bit better record, but doesn't have quite as many quality of wins. Right, right, absolutely. Moving on, going to get into uh, some bracketology talk. Uh, kind of go through uh, some of our bigger discrepancies. Uh, I'm going to go first in here, Penn State. Uh, you have them as a two-seed. I have them as a three seed. I think a three seed's probably what the committee would end up doing with Penn State at the moment. Uh, I just kind of look at a couple different factors, non-conference, strength of schedule as something that maybe could keep Penn State uh, off the two line. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, I I think most people would probably agree with you. If you look at bracket matrix right now, people are placing them on the three line. One of the things I noticed about the analytics before is the analytics are sometimes a little bit, they're bold. They are, they are kind of cutting edge and they end up being a leading, uh, a, a, a leading predictor of sorts. So I think the moment I had Penn State as a three, there were a lot of people go, you know, Penn State's a five. They, have, they didn't even, their name wasn't even called on that, uh, that top 16 reveal a few weeks ago. And that included three teams that were the first three out and they still weren't there. Now people are talking about them as being a three, um, although uh, they they just lost. 
Yes. They... Yeah, they lost. So this is this is before this. So, so before their loss tonight. Um, but at the same time, I look at across the board and these metrics that I'm using, I see them. I, I, I wonder. Here's my question. I said, I wonder if the front of their jerseys said Michigan State if they'd already got the two line already. Um, I think there's there's that element that people look at it and go, well, this is a Pat Chambers team. I, how, how much can you really trust them? Um, but again, I, I use one blanket algorithm that tries to balance all these things out. And the example I like to make is it, it can be really tough with, uh, tough with a blanket algorithm to to get everything to lay flat. It's, trying to, it's like trying to lay a ruler flat on a beach ball. It's like I say, you're just when you push one side down and you think you got it, the other side comes way off the ball. So you try to make as much contact as possible. And you, so you're going to have a, having these outliers. Granted, Penn State's not a huge outlier. You're talking about a C line. But at this point, yeah, the, the, my analytics, my bracketology deserves definitely feel better about Penn State than most people. Okay, a couple other ones. Uh, I've noticed Utah State you have on the nine line. I kind of see them more as a last four team in. Uh, I think they they really don't have the quality of wins that you would maybe want when it comes to evaluating resumes. Uh, but I, I think that's one. You have them on the nine line right now. Uh, yep. Have your thoughts on Utah State. And I think uh, one of the reasons for that is because, and, and this is good, and this is a good topic to talk about, is because a couple of things that I use are uh, are uh, um, top fifty on my site, which again the committee's not going to use. And I use classic quadrant one, which is u- utilizing the RPI. And people say, well, the RPI is dead. The reason I use it is because it's close and it's calculable. The net RPI is not calculable on a daily basis because we don't know the makeup of it. So if I look at Utah's uh, record right now it, versus the top 100, I mean, they're 2-4 and four, They're you know, against the top 50, 3-4 and four against Classic Quadrant 1. Um, I think, uh, what do we got here, 39th in record quality, 40th in all play percentage. This is all kind of stuff that just kind of meshes together. And if you look at it behind the scenes, there are they are tightly packed. They're right there with Florida and Northern Iowa. Um, again, it's, again, it's just how the shifts fall. I, and I have all the numbers in front of me, and I could, you know, show you exactly what, where they all fall. But you're going to, again, have these little outliers here and there, which is going to be different than the consensus that you see on, like, the bracket matrix. Okay, last one here. Uh, this is one I think a team I kind of see as being kind of trendy right now, Arizona State. Uh, you have them out. I, can't, I have them as a 10 seed right now. Uh, I just kind of see with this team, they're kind of trending up. They've won a couple really good games. They beat Arizona a couple weeks ago. Uh, they've won a few road games, uh, just took care of USC. I, I think they're kind of, I might be like when I'm doing my bracketology, uh, looking at them and seeing kind of, they've been playing much better as of late, uh, which is why I think they may be more like a 10 seed when it comes to the bracket, uh, but see, you have them out. Uh, just a quick thought on uh, Arizona State. Yeah, Arizona State, um, and, and it doesn't surprise me that a lot of people are higher because they are going to go heavier on resume than maybe I will. And if you look at their resume and their record quality, their record quality is pretty good. What gets them for me is their performance ratings, and they uh, and they only have an all-play percentage of .823. Um, their um, uh, uh, efficiency margins aren't fantastic. 
Okay, moving on here. Uh, once again, your explanations are top-notch uh, when coming to bracketology. Moving on here, though, we're going to get into some Twitter questions uh, because we did did pull it, put out on Twitter, uh, ask me and you, and we'll let, kind of answer some of the different questions that we have gotten. Uh, the first question uh, comes from a DM. They were the first per- person to ask me. Highest and lowest seed for Rutgers. For me, I kind of see this as Rutgers maybe, if they are able to win some quality road games, I could see them maybe getting to the sixth line uh, if things break right. Uh, if they close the season out, you know, pick up maybe like one or two road wins and continue to just dominate at home, I could say them maybe getting to the sixth line. Uh, but I could also see them maybe dropping to the 10 line uh, or even yeah. outside the tournament. Let's say they lose the rest of their games, which I don't think they will do, but I guess you never know. But it's brutal, and that's the thing is I got them on the eight line right now, but it's not like Illinois who's got uh, Nebraska and Northwestern come up next. You look at what they've got down the stretch here for Rutgers. They host Michigan. They go to the Cole Center to play Wisconsin. They go to Penn State. They host Maryland, and then they finish off by going to Mackey Arena. If I told you that they lost all five of those games, I believe it. I believe in it. If they lose all five of their, those games, all of a sudden you're talking about a team that's 18 and 13 going into the Big Ten tournament, and all of a sudden it's dicey. Um, it would it would not surprise me to see that happen. I don't think it will happen, but it's uh, I think you know with two games at least at at the rack, one of them being a winnable game with Michigan coming up here. If you give that 19th win, I think they're going to be in pretty good shape because worst-case scenario, you're looking at them being about 19-12 going into the tournament. The lowest they could go is if the, if the whole thing fell apart, I think they probably could fall as low as that 11-9 or even if they lost every game for the rest of the season, they'd be, their, their tournament you know, hopes would be in danger. But I think realistic, realistically, you're talking about up or down three, three seed lines. Um, probably two. So maybe going up as high as a 6 and low as a 10. I think that maybe is what you said you had, and I'd probably agree with that. Yeah, and for context, I think they play Michigan here. Uh, and I'm not yep. – I'm hearing Isaiah Livers might not be playing for that game. So that would kind of be lucky once again if you don't get the other team's best player on the court that night. Uh, and it kind right. of goes back to the subjectivity point we talked about earlier maybe that doesn't have like give them the value of the win that you would maybe like but at the same time if they win that game uh, they're at 19 wins Uh, let's say they win a game in the big 10 tournament they lose the rest of their regular season games but win one in the big 10 tournament i think Rutgers at that point would be uh pretty safe when it comes yeah, to yeah, it'll be getting... tough to keep them out. And I think, I think you know, they gotta. I think they'd feel better if they had Wisconsin at home or they had Purdue at home. But you know, they, and those are very inconsistent teams, the Badgers and the Boilermakers. But they're also far more potent at home, so that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a tough road for Rutgers. I, I you know, I, they're a feel good story. I hope they don't drop the whole their last line. Um, but I think if they they get a win here coming up uh, tomorrow against Michigan, I think that's. Yeah, and if they can beat 
let's say they beat Michigan, they beat Maryland at home, even if they only have one uh, road win, if you you go undefeated at home, uh, win 11 Big Ten games on the season, that absolutely 100% gets you into the NCAA tournament field. Even if people are going to use the good old, they need more road wins arguments uh, that a lot of people would use. I think Rutgers, though, they're pretty safe for now, and if they can win two more games, they're in the NCAA tournament yeah. for sure. They're, they're not like they're not like Nebraska a couple years ago who did really well in conference play because they've got the win. They've, you know, they beat they beaten Penn State by eleven. They beat Seton Hall by twenty. Uh, they've got some quality wins in there, so I, I think Rutgers is in a pretty good spot. I like them right around the eight line where we have them right now. Uh, but we'll see how things unfold in the last you know few, few weeks here. Okay, I got a two-parter for you. Uh, these are two different questions. Uh, one was through DM. One was through Twitter. Uh, one, uh, why is San Diego State in the East region? And two, can San Diego State afford a loss and still get a one? Uh, for the first one, I'll just answer this one real quick. Uh, the committee basically said Gonzaga had a better resume than San Diego State, so therefore Gonzaga gets to choose their region. They get to go to the West. Uh, and San Diego State, as the fourth overall one seed, is left with the lone reigning region, which at that point is the East region. Uh, so that's why they would go to the East. Uh, as for can San Diego State afford a loss and still get a one, I kind of see this as you know a wait and see. Let's say they lose to Utah State in the Mountain West Conference Championship game, uh, but Duke wins out. I think Duke at that point would get the one one seed. Uh, but you could be in a situation where Duke and Maryland and Dayton all lose games coming up here, and San Diego State could still be on the one line. So it's kind of a wait and see for what those other teams kind of they're also in the mix for one seed do as well. Yeah, I think I think San Diego State's gonna lose a couple times if they're gonna get off that one line. I don't I'm not sure. if they go in that uh, conference tournament with undefeated, I think it's gonna be really difficult to get them off that one line personally. Even if the, my analytics may dock them so if they if they lose to a, a you know, an inferior team, um, my analytics may come back and say, I'm gonna put them on the two line, but I've watched San Diego State Question was submitted by the CBB Hoops Geek. Uh, next question here: uh, Does Kansas still get a one seed if they lose to Baylor two more times, and that is it? Uh, and would Baylor still get a one seed if they lose twice to Kansas? Uh, this one is from at CBB Analytics on Twitter. Uh, with Baylor, I think if they lose only to Kansas two times, they are definitely on the one line and no one can take them off. They have just some incredible wins. Wing at Kansas is better than any win that any team's going to have this year. 
so I think from a Baylor perspective, they're definitely still pretty safe on the one line. As for Kansas, let's say they lose their two games to Baylor. That maybe gets a little bit tricky, uh, and the two games I'm assuming would be at Baylor on Saturday and in the Big 12 tournament. That would probably get a little bit tricky, but again, it would depend on teams like Duke. If Duke loses two more games themselves, they're not going to be on the one line. If Maryland loses another game or two, they're not going to be on the one line. So it kind of depends on what those other teams do around them. Yeah, and I, and I think you and I share the exact same opinion on that one. I think the committee would look long and hard. Granted, I think far and away, these are the two teams with the best resumes. Um, even that includes San Diego State. I look at I look at these two teams and say what they've done. It, it, you know, bringing into account the impactful victories and the, the tough uh, slate that they play. I, these, are the, these are the two teams uh, that, in my opinion, are, are, I want to say, head and shoulders above the rest because San Diego State's there, Gonzaga's there. But uh, I still think these are the, the two best resume teams. Um, Gonzaga's already got that win, a uh, nice win against Kansas. If they lose two to Kansas, I don't think there's a ton of shame in that if those are the only two losses. But I think the committee would have to start thinking, well, are we going to put this team on the one line who couldn't even, in a, in a three-game set, couldn't win one game against Baylor? Would that be enough for them to knock them down to the two-line? Again, I'm in complete agreement with you because we have, it would be a wait-and-see situation. What does Gonzaga do? What does San Diego State do? And more importantly, what does Duke do? Yeah, and most likely we're going to see a situation where uh, those teams split. I could maybe see Kansas winning this one, Baylor winning in the Big 12 tournament. I think either way, if Baylor only loses two games to Kansas, they're definitely on the one line. And if Kansas can even split one of those two games against Baylor and doesn't take any other losses, they'd be on the one line. Absolutely, and I think I would agree with that. Moving on, uh, next question. Uh, the Cincinnati outlook right now. Uh, this is from Tim Hines 4 on Twitter, at Tim Hines 4 uh, I kind of see Cincinnati... They're kind of an interesting team to me. I have them in my projected field. Uh, there's just not a whole lot with the resume. They're kind of like one of those last four in teams for me. So what they probably would need to do is just continuing winning games in the American. Uh, and obviously if you can win the American tournament, that ignore all the Cincinnati bubble questions but if they're unable to do so uh, if they're able to complete the regular season with some more a few more wins coming down the stretch i think they would probably get on the right side of the bubble yeah right now i'm in the same spot i'm in the last uh, last four in, so they'd be in Dayton for me right now they're gonna have some opportunities coming up here they've already got wins over the likes of uh out of Houston and Wichita State, and they're going to see those guys again here in the next few weeks. They got uh, they got UCF next. I mean, that's tomorrow. Then after that, you got Wichita State and Houston back to back. Could be very important games there. I think they got to split there. Um, and those other teams are also jockeying for positions, so very impactful games. Um, and then, if assuming, say you beat UCF and you lose to Wichita State and Houston, worst case scenario, then you potentially have a couple of get right games. Winnable games. You go with two South Florida. They can win that one. They host Temple, another winnable game. Um, I think they're going to be in decent shape, but it would really 
help their cause a lot if they can get another win here against Wichita State or Houston in the next couple weeks. Absolutely. Uh, and the final question comes from uh, Tom Schuster, T, TJS Domer2 on Twitter, at TSJ, TJS Domer2. Uh, he asks the benefits and downsides to major m- metric systems. So are we, are we talking about just like KPI and all those things like that? Is that basically the question where, where, where he's going with this? I have no idea. Okay, I'm thinking of major metric systems as far as the ones that the committee uses, which I think uh, uh, Ken Palm KPI, uh, the uh, DPI for the ESPN. Um, the benefits and the downsides, I, you know, I, I, they're using it their own way. It's far be it for me to judge it and say one way is the right way or another way. I, the upsides of it is it's, it's you know, they're trying. I'll say that because for the longest time, everything was so RPI, the RPI was being gained, and the RPI had kind of grown obsolete, so they listened and they ended up kind of evolving to the net. Now, is the net a, a huge improvement? That is debatable, uh, but they're, you know, they look at these different metrics, um, and I like the fact that everybody kind of does it their own way, and I, I've said this before, I have a lot of respect for a guy like Kevin Pauga. If you look at Kevin Pauga's stuff on his KPI stuff, on, uh, on like bracket matrix, his stuff really flies in the face of the, of the mainstream. He kind of does it his own way, and he, he shows no fear. And I give him a lot of credit for that. I'm sure he has a lot of uh, a method to his own madness that a lot of people wouldn't agree with. But the committee trusts that approach, and I think that that's the, the same across the board for anybody who does performance metrics, uh, like Pomeroy or anything like that. Everybody's doing it kind of their own way, and they have their own viewpoint of looking at things, and I respect that. Um, and I think the committee it looks at that and says, you know, there are a lot of different perspectives, and the fact that they can actually look at all these different perspectives and absorb them to their credit shows that they're not looking at being locked in on one thing. They're going to look at a lot of different things from a lot of different ways and judge based on that. Yeah, and it kind of goes to the opening discussion. It's not all about one metric. It's about looking at different theories. Uh, you mentioned KPI, POM. Uh, yourself, you all have kind of different theories into what you value in terms of, you know, doing the, you know, whether it be ratings, uh, your bracketology deserves. There's all sorts of different ways you can kind of theorize different ways about it uh, and how a team should be seated, whereas maybe they wouldn't be favored or seated in another region. And it's, it's all good to be used, uh, but as said, it cannot be the end-all, be-all. One team being this in one metric can't be, you know, you need subjectivity. You need kind of that, you know, ability to look at different teams uh, and see, like, did X team not have their starting point guard for six weeks and that is why they're not ranked high in Ken Palm and all these performance metrics. Well, they're they're a good tool to use, uh, a great tool to use. Uh, it should not be the end-all, be-all uh, when tournament right. selection comes. Right. And that's why I say, like, resume, for example, that's why, I, you know, I, I, I just, you know, from a performance standpoint, UNC Greensboro, in my opinion, wasn't a great team last year. I'm sure a lot of people said they had a great resume, and their resume was very, very good. 
But if you're going to bring in that performance ranking portion of things, which basically tells you, hey, I'm also, I not only care about your record, but I care about how truly good you are. That, you know, do you really want to ignore that? Some people will say, yes, I absolutely want to ignore that. Other people will say, no, I want the best, the best uh, teams in the field that you can possibly get. Um, so, you know, I think the, the committee's going to try to accommodate that by looking at, you know, not only the good resumes, but also teams that have performed well as well. Yeah. Give me the 68 best teams. That's all that you can ask. Uh, and doing it kind of the way the committee does it, yeah, they're going to make some mistakes sometimes. But and, at the and you know it's not like and, and you know I always say it's, it's not like we're curing cancer here. Everybody flips out about the brackets. Everybody flips about the seedings. Oh my God, you put this there. My, this, my team's a seven. Why are you giving them a ten? They lose their minds. And the funny thing every year is that the selection committee comes out. They list their teams. There's outrage for 15 minutes, and then everybody's filling out their brackets, and all is forgotten. And that's kind of the funny part about it every year is that everybody kind of loses their minds for six weeks, and then all of a sudden, with a span of 15, 30 minutes, it's all gone. Everybody forgot it, and now we're just focused on the tournament. Yep. That's how it goes pretty much every single year. Eric, anything you would like to plug? No, I just, again, if anybody wants to follow me, I'm on Twitter at Haslametrics. My site is Haslametrics.com. Out there I have ratings, rankings, bracketology, automated game, and team summaries. Um, if you want to you know, go out there and simulate any, any potential game out there in Division I. Uh, otherwise, like I said, if you want to reach out to me, I'm on uh, Twitter at Haslametrics. Love to talk to Follow Eric on Twitter. Check out his website at Haslametrics. Uh, Until next time, thanks again for tuning in to another edition of the Making the Madness podcast.